Hello, Campus Cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, higher education professional and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a four. And y'all, it's one of those truly puzzling stories that will leave you scratching your head, racking your brain, and just really wondering, where is he? In this episode, I tell you the story of University of Massachusetts Dartmouth student, Charles Allen Jr., affectionately known as Charlie to his friends and family. In October of 2007, Charlie made plans to attend a party with his best friend, Mason. But when the two were supposed to meet up on campus to drive to the party together, Charlie never showed. And that wasn't the only odd, out-of-character behavior from Charlie. Earlier that same day, he had a bizarre and frantic conversation with his sister, and he left a separate panicky, out-of-breath voicemail on each of his parents' cell phones, which was the last time anyone ever heard from Charlie. He has officially been missing since October 12, 2007, leaving behind a trail of unanswered questions. But here's where it gets even stranger. Shortly before his disappearance, Charlie legally changed his name to Neo Babson Maximus, adding another layer of complexity to this already perplexing case. This episode is titled The Disappearance of Charlie Allen Jr., aka Neo. So without further ado, let's get started. Malcolm Allen Jr., the oldest of three children, was born on April 26, 1985, to his parents, Charles Sr. and Anne Allen. He and his two younger siblings, Brittany and Persephone, formerly Brendan, grew up in Haverhill, Massachusetts, where they spent most of their time between Haverhill and their summer home in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Family and friends described Charlie as an incredibly smart, determined, driven young man who put his heart and soul into everything he did. He was a quirky, funny, eccentric person who approached life with a certain sense of gusto. He was effortlessly athletic and social. He always wore a big smile and greeted others with a happy-go-lucky attitude. As for school and academics, Charlie's parents said it came easy to him. He would do well without even having to study or try hard, Yeah, he was one of those people. (laughs) But perhaps what he was most known for was not just wanting to be good at whatever he did, but he wanted to be the best. His father, Charles Sr., said, quote, he would dedicate himself to something, a passion, and he would spend pretty much all of his time working at that particular thing until he felt he was mastering it, 
end quote. While in high school, one thing in particular that Charlie mastered was the world of online gaming, and he would often participate in, and win, competitions where multiple players would compete over the internet. Charlie was particularly skilled at the game of Half-Life, which is a series of first-person shooter games. According to Charlie's friends and family, he fell in love with online gaming, and just like anything else in his life that he put his mind to, he didn't just want to be good at gaming, he wanted to be number one. One of Charlie's best friends from high school, Anthony Costanzo, said, quote, he was very determined. He would put a lot of time and effort into anything to make himself the best, and he was the best, end quote. According to an episode of Disappeared, Charlie became one of the top-ranked Half-Life players in the world, to the point that his father even took him to Dallas, Texas, to play in a prominent gaming tournament. Y'all, he was so good at Half-Life that even strangers knew his name and he had somewhat of a following, especially after newspaper articles were written about him and his gaming skills. But it's important to point out, though, that Charlie didn't go by his actual name in the gaming world. Rather, he used the online screen name of Neo. After graduating from Haverhill High School in the spring of 2003, Charlie attended the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, or UMass Dartmouth for short, and college too came easy to him. He majored in psychology, earned excellent grades, and he even considered going on to medical school after he finished his bachelor's degree. While in college, Charlie decided to leave the online gaming world behind for a while and focus his attention on something new, something a little more physical. He took up the game of tennis, and once again, he was very naturally skilled at it. Charlie's sister, Brittany, who was also one of his best friends because they were so close in age, said Charlie would study the game of tennis and really learn the strategies of the sport. She said he would quote-unquote eat, sleep, and breathe tennis. Once again, Charlie mastered the game and he became so good at tennis that he tried out for the college team and made it. <laughs> so he was officially a college athlete, which he took very seriously. After joining the tennis team, it was no surprise that Charlie would spend most of his time on the tennis courts, which is where he met fellow student Mason Biao. The two became fast friends in college and bonded over their love of the sport. Mason explained that Charlie loved tennis so much that he was fascinated when Mason told him that he, Mason, had trained at tennis academies in Florida. Apparently, Charlie decided he aspired to do that too, train in Florida, because he thought it was just so cool. Mason said, quote, Charlie wanted to get a lot better. He had always said he wanted to go down south and just train to see how good he could get, end quote. In the fall of 2007, 22-year-old Charlie was a senior in college living his best life. When he wasn't in class or hanging out with Mason on the tennis courts, he was watching tennis on TV because he truly aspired to be a tennis pro one day. During this time, though, Actually, it was sometime during the summer, just before he started his senior year of college, Charlie made a conscious decision to stop taking medication for bipolar disorder. You see, Charlie had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder when he was in high school, something his father said was a big adjustment for him. His dad said, quote, he became a bit manic and it was a pretty big change for him. He had been somewhat shy in school up to that point, and suddenly he was very outgoing and it was noticeable. When he was manic, he talked a lot and fast, and, you know, he had somewhat grandiose thoughts. 
end quote. Charlie's father explained that when he was diagnosed in high school, he began taking medication and started seeing a therapist, which helped stabilize Charlie's moods and symptoms associated with bipolar disorder. And Charlie ended up thriving despite being diagnosed with it. But once he went off to college and began living on his own, he developed more of an on-again, off-again relationship with his medication. Brittany, Charlie's sister, said Charlie told her that he didn't like taking the meds because they didn't just stabilize his moods. They literally made him feel numb, like he was dead inside. Brittany said, quote, he didn't get happy or sad. I remember one time I was so upset about something, like hysterically crying to him about it. And he looked at me and he was like, I'm just jealous that you can feel like that, feel passionately about something, even if it's bad. Because he didn't, end quote. So during the summer of 2007, Charlie made the personal decision to stop taking his medication altogether because he said he felt better when he didn't take it. And this decision was something that his family knew about and understood. So it's not like he tried to hide it or anything like that. And by all accounts from his family and friends, Charlie seemed good without it, like he had everything under control. Apparently, things had leveled out, and he seemed to be managing the symptoms by staying physically fit and maintaining a healthy and active lifestyle. Brittany said, quote, He was like, I wasn't alive before. I feel like I'm living for the first time. End quote. And here's the thing. Charlie really did seem like he was managing his bipolar disorder well, without medication. You see, his friend Mason said he never knew Charlie had been diagnosed with a mental health disorder, like at all. Mason said there were just never any signs or symptoms that Charlie displayed when they hung out together, which they did several times a week. But Mason would learn about his friend's diagnosis soon enough. On October 11th, 2007, the day started off like any other day. At around 2 p.m., Charlie and Mason met on the tennis courts to practice just as they regularly did. While there, Charlie told Mason that he had been invited to a party by the women's tennis team, and Charlie asked Mason to go with him later that night. Mason said Charlie was excited about the party, and he was even more excited to go talk to girls, meet new people, you know, just have a good time. After a couple of hours on the tennis court, at around 4 p.m., Mason and Charlie decided to go eat dinner in the campus cafeteria. Mason said that, too, was all normal. The only thing that kind of stood out to him was that Charlie ate a slice of pizza off Mason's plate. <laughs> Mason said he was caught off guard at first, and he asked Charlie why he did that. Charlie simply laughed and told him, well, I thought it was my slice of pizza. <laughs> After that, the two friends laughed it off and finished their dinner. After eating in the cafeteria at around 6 p.m., Charlie and Mason went their separate ways to shower and get ready for the party. They both lived off campus. Mason lived in his own place, about a half an hour away, and Charlie lived with his friend, Anthony, in an apartment in New Bedford, which was just a short drive only a few miles away from campus. So Mason and Charlie planned to meet at a parking lot back on campus at around 8.30 p.m. so they could drive to the party together. However, when the time to meet back on campus came, Mason showed, but Charlie never did. Mason said he waited there for about 30 to 45 minutes before he eventually gave up and drove back home. Mason explained that he just thought Charlie either changed his mind about going or just decided to go onto the party by himself. Mason said he tried to call Charlie a few times, but his calls went straight to voicemail. 
Regardless, Mason said he didn't think too much about it at the time, just that he would see or talk to his friend a little later. Which y'all, I have to pause there just for a minute because as I was writing this, I just kept thinking, that is not like me at all. Like if my friend went to the party without me or I thought my friend went to the party without me, I would be so sad. And then if my friend wasn't answering my phone call or like I thought she was like, ignoring me, I would be even sadder. But then my mind would immediately go to, oh my gosh, what is wrong? (laughs) So I don't know. I think that that might just be the difference between like girlfriends and guy friends, you know, like they're just like, oh, I guess he decided to go without me. And girls are like, no, what's wrong? Why does she hate me? (laughs) Or what's wrong with her? Anyway, I just thought that was a funny little observation. Okay, moving on. Meanwhile, at about 8 p.m., Charlie's sister, Brittany, logged onto Facebook. You see, Charlie loved Facebook, and he and his sister would talk to each other every single day on the social media site. This day, October 11th, 2007, was no different. Charlie had sent Brittany a message on Facebook earlier that evening, so at 8, she was logging on to finally read it. But when she did, she noticed something super strange. The message Charlie had sent her earlier was no longer there. In fact, the user on the other end who sent the message no longer existed at all. Charlie's Facebook account had been completely deleted. Brittany explained, quote, he didn't exist on there anymore. And so I thought it was crazy that all of a sudden he would delete it and he wouldn't even tell me, end quote. Obviously, Brittany quickly picked up the phone and called her brother to see what happened. When Charlie answered, he told her he was out walking. He also mentioned that party and said he was thinking about going to it. But Brittany cut to the chase. She wanted to know why he deleted his Facebook and what was going on. But as soon as she asked him the question, she said she could hear his heart dropping over the phone. All of a sudden, Charlie seemed really scared and his tone changed. He told her he had no idea what happened to his Facebook account, but that he himself did not delete it. Brittany said, quote, and then he just started panicking. He was talking really fast, just in a panic, end quote. Charlie then began to tell Brittany that people were after him and that he wasn't safe. He also told her that she wasn't safe either. Brittany explained, quote, he's like, you have to leave school right now. You have to go home, stay with dad. Dad's the only one who can protect you. There are really important people after me. I've sent some emails and I'm not safe, end quote. Then, right before Charlie hung up the phone with his sister, he told her, quote-unquote, all of the answers are in the periodic table of elements. At that point, not sure what to think, but incredibly concerned for her brother and his well-being, Brittany called their dad for help. And when she did, Charles Sr. informed Brittany that he and his wife had each received a separate voicemail from Charlie, too. And y'all, they were just as bizarre and panicky as Brittany's phone call with him. In both voicemail messages to his parents, Charlie sounded like he was running and he was out of breath when he was talking. In the voicemail he left for his father, Charlie mentioned possibly going to Florida or even Mexico. And in the voicemail to his mother, he talked about going to Texas. He also told his mom that he felt isolated and that he needed to be loved more. Charlie's dad, Charles Sr., explained the voicemails in a little more detail to WJAR NBC10 News. He said, quote, one of them was like, I'm going to Texas. Another one was like, I'm going to Florida. 
and then across the border from Florida to Mexico, which there is no border from Florida to Mexico, so they were a little strange, end quote. Naturally, when Charlie's parents checked their messages, they immediately tried to call him back, but their calls went straight to his voicemail because Charlie had turned off his phone. And that day, those voicemails that Charlie left and the phone conversation he had with Brittany, well, it was the last time that Charlie's family ever heard his voice. As the hours went by and nobody heard from him, his family notified campus police at UMass Dartmouth that he was missing. A couple days later, on Sunday, October 14th, 2007, Dartmouth police, so city police, not university police, were called to investigate a suspicious bag that a homeowner found in his backyard. Detective Robert Levinson responded to the call and discovered the bag was actually a school backpack, and when he looked through it, he found Charlie's name on some of the items inside. So Levinson contacted the university, which is when he discovered that the owner of the backpack, Charlie Allen Jr., had been reported missing two days prior. After this, the Dartmouth police launched an official investigation and quickly organized a search that same day. They scoured a wooded area surrounding the campus and even brought in bloodhounds and conducted both ground and aerial searches, but it all yielded no results. They found no signs of Charlie. That is, until Charles Sr. told them they needed to search for Charlie's car, his blue 1999 Ford Expedition. And later that same day, authorities found it. The car was left abandoned in a parking lot on the university campus, and it contained a pillow and a blanket, which led police to believe that he had been sleeping in his car instead of his apartment. Now, in the back of their minds, Charlie's family really thought they would eventually hear from him. Apparently, he had left before without notice, like he had left town to go watch tennis tournaments in the past, but he always called. He always let someone in his family know, either the same day he left or the next day. And he always let them know what his plans were and when he'd return. But when police found his vehicle, that's when his family knew, without a doubt, that something was very wrong. Reality began to set in, but nothing was making sense. The next day, on Monday, October 15th, 2007, Detective Levinson was discussing Charlie's case with a fellow officer. As he was describing Charlie and the circumstances, the two officers realized that Charlie matched the description of a suspect of a home break-in that had occurred in the early morning hours of Friday, October 12th, a little more than six hours after Brittany had last spoken to her brother. The break-in occurred at a house not far from the UMass Dartmouth campus. One of the homeowners, Jean Boudreau, woke up to find a young man with no shirt on inside her home. He was climbing through her second-floor bedroom window. But both Jean and the young man were completely startled when they saw each other. And for a brief moment, they had a conversation. On an episode of Disappeared, Jean explained that the young man seemed very confused. She said, quote, he says, oh, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me, ma'am, I'm just leaving. He was looking for his friend, Mason, and then he just proceeded to go out the window. He was actually very polite, end quote. Police quickly realized that by the physical description the woman gave, the young man who came in through her window was likely Charlie, especially since Charlie does, or did at the time, have a friend named Mason. The thing is, Police didn't understand why he would be searching for Mason in that area, though. 
because Mason lived nowhere near the house he broke into. Plus, Charlie was not a known criminal, and attempting to get into a random house was not his normal behavior whatsoever. Taking all of this into consideration, police began to theorize that Charlie's sudden disappearance was connected to his bipolar disorder, especially since he was not taking his medication and he hadn't been in several months. Detective Levinson said, quote, so it would all make sense that he was in some type of manic state and he was acting irrational, end quote. But Charlie's family and friends don't believe his mental health had anything to do with his disappearance. They firmly believe that Charlie was in some sort of trouble. They acknowledge that he was acting out of character and that nothing was making sense, but they refused to blame his bipolar disorder for whatever was going on with him. His sister, Brittany, explained the family's sentiments when she said, quote, People don't understand, you know, mental illness or what people call mental illness. And once they hear that label, it's like, oh, he probably just ran away. Or he's probably schizophrenic. He has no idea. He's just crazy. I think he's more sane than anyone I've ever met. End quote. Plus, when Charlie would experience a manic episode, the family would always see signs of it. Like they would see it coming through Charlie's actions and their interactions with him. In other words, his mania would never come on suddenly or abruptly. It was more gradual or progressive. Charlie's mom, Anne, explained that even when he was manic, he would always, always make sense. He would never lose touch with reality. Anne said, quote, It starts off slow, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds. That's the way it was with Charlie. You don't just lose your mind in one minute and run away, end quote. So, according to his family, there were simply no signs indicating that he may have had a mental breakdown or a manic episode. Another unusual thing that made Charlie's family skeptical about his disappearance was what police found when they searched his computer, or more like the lack of what they found. You see, it was no secret that Charlie basically lived his life online. He loved gaming and social media and sending emails and messages and really just everything the internet had to offer. So it was super odd when investigators searched Charlie's computer and found nothing. And remember those emails that Charlie mentioned to Brittany? He said he had sent some emails to important people, but, you know, didn't elaborate much. Well, whatever emails he was talking about, there were no trace of them. Essentially, his online presence had been wiped clean. But this was incredibly strange for someone who literally sent and received emails every single day. It was even odder that police found zero emails in Charlie's account for at least a whole week before his disappearance, between the dates of October 4th and October 11th of 2007. Which sounds to me like somebody purposefully deleted them, but anyway, we don't know. Nobody knows for sure. Brittany said, quote, It blows my mind that we could give Charlie's computer to the police to do the forensics, and someone who lived his entire life on the computer they found nothing. He, like, lived a virtual life, you know? And they found nothing. End quote. Police, however, held firmly to their belief that Charlie had a manic episode, which caused him to panic and act irrationally. They theorized that, perhaps, it had been building for quite some time, but Charlie was able to somehow hide it from his family and friends. They particularly doubled down on this theory after they discovered something even more peculiar. 
they learned that about a month before his disappearance, Charlie had legally changed his name from Charles Allen Jr. to Neo Babson Maximus. Like he even got a new state-issued ID with the new name listed on it and everything. According to Uncovered.com, the name did have some significance. It wasn't completely out of left field. Neo was from his favorite movie, The Matrix, with Keanu Reeves, and you might recall that it was also his screen name for online gaming. Babson was his mother's maiden name, and Maximus was the main character from the movie Gladiator. But even though Charlie changing his legal name seemed peculiar or bizarre to police, Charlie's family and friends just laughed it off. To them, it wasn't that out of the ordinary for him. It was more of a testament to his quirky, eccentric personality. For example, Charlie's good friend and roommate, Anthony Costanzo, said he got home from work one day and Charlie showed him his new ID with the new name on it. Anthony said, quote, He took out his license and he showed it to me and it said Neo Babson Maximus. And I just laughed. I was like, are you serious? What the hell is this? I just kind of brushed it aside. Like, well, I'm still calling you Charlie. I'm not calling you Neo in the public. End quote. And when Brittany found out about it, she asked him why he did it. She said he told her that he wanted to be a tennis pro and Neo just sounded better. It sounded more prestigious than Charlie and it was just unique and different. Plus, some people in his circle of family and friends knew about it and some didn't. Mason, for instance, had no idea Charlie changed his name because he never told him. Regardless, police considered the name change as further evidence of Charlie's mental state at the time. Detective Levinson said, quote, I don't know what makes a person decide to change their name. Not only do we have a person that's missing, we have an individual that legally changed his name. And perhaps, you know, did he do that to escape his past? To start a new life? Maybe, I don't know. I guess there are so many possible answers out there. End quote. And the thought of Charlie having a mental health crisis made it even more critical for the police to try and find him. Levinson explained, quote, I think the fact that Charlie did suffer from some type of mental illness made it all the more urgent to search the woods and to reach out to as many people who knew Charlie and that maybe had seen him within the last few days before he disappeared, end quote. When police searched the woods again for Charlie about a week into his disappearance, they did find his sneakers along the road near the house that he had possibly broken into, which actually confirmed their suspicions that Charlie was the shirtless intruder. So after this, their search widened, and they knew they needed to scour the woods and comb through the area more meticulously. This time, they utilized as many resources as possible, including the Massachusetts State Police helicopter and many, many people searching on foot. They were particularly concerned for Charlie's safety because he was out there, somewhere, with no shoes and no shirt, wearing only a pair of warm-up pants and possibly some socks. But Charlie's dad said if anybody could survive out in the woods, it would be Charlie. He was smart and determined, so he would find a way. And this theory gained some traction a few weeks into his disappearance, after a witness came forward saying he thought he saw Charlie. The witness, a man named Jim Costa, was leaving for work one Saturday morning in October, and he noticed a young man with no shirt on who looked quite disheveled. The young man was walking toward an auto carrier truck on Cross Road in Dartmouth, which was just down the street from the university. 
Jim was unsure whether the young man was approaching to ask for a ride or if he was walking toward it to drive it somewhere. Here's the thing though. Jim Costa wasn't sure exactly when he saw the shirtless young man. He wasn't sure if it was the Saturday immediately following Charlie's disappearance on October 13th, or if it was a week later on October 20th. Jim was interviewed on an episode of Disappeared, and he said very certainly, quote, if it was the right day, I feel confident it was that student, end quote. This potential sighting sparked hope that perhaps Charlie did leave on his own and that he was still out there somewhere. It also opened up tons of possibilities of where he may have gone because the intersection where he was potentially spotted feeds onto I-195, a major thoroughfare in the area. So police believe it is possible that Charlie left the area on his own after he legally changed his name and after he experienced a severe manic episode. Also, his friend Anthony said Charlie certainly had the means and the knowledge to do so. Anthony said, quote, If he wanted to change his identity, I'm pretty sure he could have done it. I mean, he's pretty creative in the terms of being able to, you know, act, you know, and be something different. He did change his name, so I guess in a sense, his identity was kind of already altered, end quote. Anthony added that if Charlie did choose to leave, that he had a plan. And he had a backup plan and a backup plan to his backup plan because that's just the type of person he is. So was changing his name the first step in some grandiose plan to create a new identity and leave behind the only life and family and friends he had ever known? His family does not believe so. He was just so close to them, all of them, and he was incredibly happy with his life and he was making plans for his future. Brittany said, quote, Charlie would never just disappear. He knows me well enough and his family to know how much it would hurt. I have no idea where he is or if he's alive. It's like the ultimate internal struggle because you can't really grieve over something that you don't know, end quote. The family also thinks that foul play was involved, particularly from the sheer terror and panic in his voice, you know, from Brittany's phone conversation with him and the voicemails he left for his parents. Brittany also said, quote, I didn't think that there was any chance in hell that he was just having an illusion that there were people after him. I could tell that he was being honest. He was really scared, and I believe it, end quote. However, police found no evidence that foul play was involved or that Charlie even had any enemies. In fact, from the evidence they did find, it was quite the opposite. Everyone they spoke to loved Charlie and had no ill will toward him. Mason, his tennis friend, said Charlie was just a happy guy who was always friendly with everyone he encountered. And his friend Anthony said Charlie was in no way a troublesome kid, like he never picked fights, he wasn't a mean person, and he just didn't have any kind of bad blood with anyone. So police had a hard time even trying to investigate the possibility that Charlie left against his will. After two months with no word from or sign of Charlie, the investigation into his disappearance began to stall. Investigators were no longer receiving tips or leads, and it's important to note that they were never able to locate his cell phone, his car keys, or his wallet. It's like those items disappeared with him. But those items also were never used again, at least not that they know of. On the episode of Disappeared, Charlie's father said he still keeps Charlie's bank account open and his cell phone activated just in case. 
And they said that for months, every time the phone rang, they'd hope and pray it would be Charlie. Although sadly, it never was. In 2008, nearly a year after Charlie went missing, his family reached out to a private investigator, John Lassise, who was so struck by Charlie's story that he ended up taking the case pro bono. Lassise formed a cold case team with several other PIs, who decided to organize a much larger and much wider extensive search for Charlie. A four-square-mile search kicked off on the one-year anniversary of Charlie's disappearance on October 11, 2008. On this day, more than 300 people gathered in the wooded area near UMass Dartmouth to search for Charlie on foot, by ATV, helicopters, canine units, and cadaver dogs. On the third day of this new comprehensive search, a group of volunteers came across something that made their hearts drop to their stomachs. They found some remains that appeared to be bones. But it didn't take long to determine that what they found were animal bones rather than human remains, which made Charlie's family and friends breathe a sigh of relief. Because once again, they had hope that he was still out there. Ultimately, though, the new, larger search for Charlie yielded no results, and everyone was back to square one. However, after investigating his case, the P.I. Lassis said he still has hope that Charlie is out there, somewhere, alive. Lassis said, quote, I don't believe that Charlie is in the woods. I believe at this point that Charlie made it out. The only place to go with this investigation right now is to assume that he is alive and see if we can find him, end quote. About a year after the search, there was another potential sighting of Charlie. This time in New Bedford, Massachusetts, just 11 miles from the UMass Dartmouth campus. It's the same city where Charlie lived in the apartment with Anthony. So in December 2009, at about 4 a.m., a man by the name of Stephen Kelly and his wife were asleep in their home when they heard a knock on their front door. Stephen got up to answer it, where he was met by a young man who was not dressed for the winter weather. According to Stephen, the young man said he needed help getting back to SMU, or Southeastern Massachusetts University, which was the former name of UMass Dartmouth until 1991. Stephen, unsure what to make of the person standing at his front door, asking to get back to a college that didn't exist anymore, well, he decided to shut the door and call police. Stephen said he wanted to help the young man, but he was also being cautious because, I mean, he was a complete stranger, and he wasn't sure what the stranger's intentions were. But when police arrived to check on the guy, he was gone. The next day, Stephen Kelly's wife mentioned the incident to a friend, who told her about Charlie Allen's disappearance. When she and Stephen were discussing it a little later, he decided to look up photos and news articles about Charlie to see if it might have been the same person who was at their door the night before. And y'all, he said he was close to 100% certain that Charlie was indeed the person who showed up at his house. But regardless, it didn't matter because whoever it was was long gone by now. Authorities did conduct another search of the area in New Bedford, but they found no evidence or traces of Charlie. Charlie has now been a missing person for over 16 years, and there has never been any official or verified sightings of him. Sadly, Charlie's mother, Anne Lynch Allen, passed away from colon cancer in June of 2022. She was only 59 years old, and sadly, she never got a resolution about her son's disappearance. 
the other members of Charlie's family, well, they still have hope, but they also have their doubts. Brittany said, quote, most of the options are bad, you know, even if he were alive, if he had a psychotic break and he's homeless on the streets, that can't be a good life, you know? And there's a lot of guilt for us involved because we weren't able to save him from that if that is the case, end quote. The most recent update on Charlie's case came in November of 2022. According to the reporting of Tamara Zakarczyk for WJAR NBC 10 News, a new cold case unit with the Bristol County District Attorney's Office was giving his case a fresh look. They wanted to dig into it again in hopes that DNA forensic technology and genetic genealogy might lead to a break in the case. According to a Dartmouth police detective, Kyle Costa, quote, there was no video, no witnesses after he went missing. When something completely comes to an end without resolution, it really baffles us. And it makes us want to dig into it more and make sure that we are crossing every T and dotting every I that we possibly can. You know, again, it's one of those that really makes us shake our heads. Where is this kid? End quote. Charlie Allen Jr., a.k.a. Neil Babson Maximus, would now be 38 years old. He's a white male with brown hair and brown eyes. He stands at 5 feet 11 inches tall and weighs between 175 and 190 pounds. Charlie was last seen wearing glasses and black sweatpants with stripes down the legs. If you have any information about Charlie or his whereabouts, please, please reach out to the Massachusetts State Police at 508-961-1918. You can also submit an anonymous tip by texting BRISTOL, B-R-I-S-T-O-L, to 274-637. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 66. Be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram. That's also where you can find a direct link to my Patreon. Yes, that's right. I finally launched it and I could not be more excited. I already had a couple of people sign up so far, so I will give them a shout out here. A big thank you to Kate and Mahalia. You two are my first official exclusive campus cronies. So thanks you guys. That means so much to me. And if you haven't signed up yet, you still can. On the 15th of every month, I will drop a bonus episode. The first bonus episode this month, exclusive to my patrons and subscribers, is about a group of students who were caught running a money fraud ring in their dorm room. So y'all don't want to miss it. Be sure to sign up for my exclusive content to listen to that episode. Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again in one week for the next Chronicle.